One of the main frameworks that we find in early Buddhism that's used to describe this path and this practice that we're doing here together is this process, the process of cultivation. You know, here we find ourselves together cultivating uh, these qualities of heart and mind, cultivating mindfulness, cultivating samadhi or concentration. Or this afternoon, Andrea sharing with you, cultivating this quality of loving kindness of metta. Or in the evening, in the chanting, allowing the heart to be filled with kindness. And the, the, the Pali word is, is bhavana. And some of you maybe who have done a Goenka retreat, you might remember SN Goenka talking about metta bhavana, the cultivation of, of metta, of loving kindness. Or this morning, Greg mentioned uh, kayagata sati, this uh, mindfulness of the body. And often it's talked about the kayagata sati bhavana, something that's cultivated. And I appreciate one translator's take on this word bhavana, of cultivation. He says he imagines to himself that when the Buddha used this word to describe this path that we're on together, this practice, that he was imagining the farmers strewn across the land around him who were there cultivating in the fields. And what I appreciate about that, that is that it gives a sense of what we're doing here together, a kind of earthiness that comes with farming or gardening. The messiness of it. Maybe you know what that's like if you've had a garden or worked on a farm. Just getting your hands dirty in the soil. And I just know when I worked on a farm, it just felt like every day something didn't work out. <laughs> it was just the nature of the work. It was the nature of, of coming into contact with the earth and this natural process of growing. And I, I find this really helpful to remember in terms of what we're doing here. Uh, this process of cultivation, the earthiness of it, the messiness of it, and hopefully maybe you've already noticed, like I do at times on retreat, how messy the mind can be. Have you noticed that yet? And you come here on retreat... You have this intention to be mindful, to collect the mind, and sometimes different things happen other than that. Well, welcome to uh, welcome to the fields of cultivation. And it also reminds me about practice. It isn't about making something happen. All we're here to do is to cultivate certain conditions. Right, planting the seed, allowing for the soil, putting certain nutrients in the soil, the compost, and of course making sure to water that every so often. And then just whatever happens, happens. I'm not in control of, of when that seed is going to blossom and flower, that, that flower of awakening to arise. I can just cultivate the conditions. That's what I influence. I can't control this process. And that's where I get hooked is when I feel like I can control this. So again, this is what we're doing here, putting forth these conditions. 
those moments of mindfulness, the moments of kindness, the moments of patience. And tonight, what I'd like to share with you is just sharing with you two conditions, kind of two nutrients that we're going to put into the soil that I find so helpful. And you're going to hear, really, I'm, I'm going to be talking about just a few moments, maybe, or minutes of your day here on retreat that are really important, really essential nutrients in the soil to allow the blossoming of this flower of awakening. And the two that I, I want to uh, share with you some reflections about is one, coming back to ethical integrity, the, the precepts that Greg introduced us to the first night and in particular, the savoring of our ethical integrity. Really savoring that. As the Buddha talks about, the bliss of blamelessness. And hopefully you'll notice as I go over this, there's a real art to this. But it's an a, essential ingredient to what we're cultivating here. So again, the first one, ethical integrity and the, this process of savoring it. And then the other condition that I'm going to invite you to put into the soil of our practice here together is, is to not only practice for yourself when you're here, but to practice for others. And maybe if it fits to practice for all beings. And this is, many of you might know in the Mahayana tradition, this, this um, comes to fruition as bodhicitta, this heart that is practicing for the benefit of all beings. And just these two ingredients help shape how I'm engaging in mindfulness. Just as Andrea speaking the other night about the importance of kind of framing or having the, 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 the wise perspective on how we're engaging in mindfulness and to frame it in a particular way. And these two qualities, this ethical integrity, savoring it, and bodhicitta, practicing for the benefit of all beings, helps frame what we're doing here. For me, what I notice is when those are in the soil and I'm engaged in this willingness to be present, it, it's like, it feels different. It's like the practice, I can start to lead with the heart. The heart is there right in the midst of this, this willingness to be present moment after moment. So again, just these two things, the savoring ethical integrity and bodhijitta are practicing not only for oneself, but for others as well. But before I dive into both of these conditions or ingredients I'm gonna invite you to bring into practice, I not only um, you know, want to see these as framing mindfulness, but to take some time to kind of situate myself and to share with you where I'm coming from, because this is also an important element to remember whenever I'm sharing with you these reflections when I give a Dharma talk or even in the morning. And it's important because this mind, like all minds, have been shaped by a whole host of different conditions 
Again, we're coming back to the gardening analogy. There are certain conditions that, that arise, and when those conditions are there, it gives rise to, to, to plant certain plants and certain things. And this mind has been conditioned by certain, um, certain factors. And as a result, it's like when I, when I come to these teachings and I practice and I hear the words of the Buddha, I hear a certain Buddha. It's important to remember this, and it's dependent upon how I'm situated. Kind of the common ways that I'm situated, right? I'm 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 white, heterosexual, male, educated. I live what you call a modern lifestyle. As many of you know, I have a background in in the Zen tradition too, in, in Rinzai Zen. I lived in a Zen monastery for about six years. I was brought up Catholic and uh, a little bit on the liberal side. There was a, this influence of what's called liberation theology w- that some of you might be familiar with. And a whole host of other conditions, the value of the environment and other things. And what's happened is that when I, for example, read some of the discourses or the discourses of early Buddhism, it's like I hear a certain Buddha. It's like I hear this poetic Buddha speaking to me. That's the Buddha I hear. Just as when I shared with you about this Pali word bhavana, I heard someone that has this poetic sensibility around words that would imagine the fields surrounding him as he used this word and and to convey this in a poetic way to us. Sometimes I hear the Buddha who's a social commentator or, or a social activist. And it's true, I want to point out, when other people, when they carefully and sympathetically read these texts and engage in this practice, so not just making stuff up, but when they carefully read, sometimes they discover a scientific Buddha or a psychological Buddha or a super superhuman Buddha, or a humanistic one. There's a multiplicity there that we find within these teachings. Why am I mentioning this? I mention this because it's, it's important to keep this in mind when I share these reflections with you. For example, when I was practicing in Myanmar, in, in, in Burma, I had this intention to really honor and hear from this living tradition. And yet at the same time, I, I noticed I needed to translate sometimes the Dhamma that was given to me so that it could really resonate within this kind of conglomeration of conditions. It was tricky. I'm, just, I'm not asking you to kind of pick and choose what you like and don't like about the Dhamma. So if you do that, you're just always going to get what you've always gotten <laughs> if we follow kind of that, 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 um, our mere likes and dislikes. And yet at the same time, you might have to translate a little bit of what I share with you because of how you're situated. It's this dance of following a living tradition that moves the heart towards liberation and at the same time finding the language that's going to speak to us.
So back to these two conditions that we're here to put into the soil. Ethical integrity, you know, takes the form of these five precepts that we chanted together that we're all in training together in. The, the word sika padang means uh, it's a training. You might remember chanting that. Sika, a training, padang, is a, is a, comes from the word uh, ped, you know, a, a foot, a path, a path of training. This intention not to, uh, not to harm any living being, not to intentionally harm any living being, not to intentionally steal, not to harm through sexual conduct, to set aside sexual activity, not to hurt others through speech, and not to recreationally take intoxicants that cloud the mind. And I, I want to point out how much ethical integrity is an essential component of this path. I just want you to reflect right now the, the, around the simple definition of awakening that the Buddha gives. Namely, that, that really all awakening is, it's a, it's a heart and mind that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And when I imagine that, it's like, oh, he's using these words that have an ethical valence to them. The absence of that allows for the flowering of ethical integrity. And you find this in other ways of the way he undermines a lot of the societal things that were going on during his time. For example, you, you find him uh, play around with words. because He's such a poetic Buddha. <laughs> for example, he uses this word Brahman in a very interesting way. For example, you find this in a collection of, of the texts uh, called the Dhammapada. There's a chapter called Brahmins. And he decides to redefine this word, that it no longer, in his vocabulary, defines someone who comes from a particular family. And because they come from that particular family, they're designated as noble and better than everyone else. He wants to undermine that and say, no, 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 the people who we should respect, the, the people who kind of garner respect are those who have ethical integrity. That's who a Brahmin is. And hopefully you hear, right, this undermining of a, of a societal structure that's really oppressive. That one, a person is deemed better than just because of the family that they're born into. And other people, because of the family that they're born into, is, are, are seen as less than, is seen as degenerate. This has ramifications for our own lives, what we're doing here, but also for the world that we live in. So how do we use the ethical integrity that's here in this room to move our practice forward? How to engage in it? And it's really simple. It's to savor your ethical integrity every day. To come back to that word that Andre used, which I so appreciated, this, this quality of abiding. Viharati comes from Vihara. Oh, this is my place. This is my abode. This is where I abide in my ethical integrity. Because it feels so good to recognize, wow, today, today I didn't kill anybody. What a sweet thing. 
I didn't intentionally harm another living being. Isn't that cool? Doesn't that feel so sweet? The pleasure of that. That's this, this wholesome pleasure. And I invite you, in order to abide in ethical integrity, is to keep the five precepts simple. This is kind of a rev- revelation to me. I got this from uh, 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 Tanasaro Bhikkhu. And he feels like the, the Buddha meant for the five precepts to be kind of simple. Because when they're kind of simple like this, it allows us a gateway to feel good about our ethical integrity. And yes, there is a place for the nuance of being ethical in our lives. So I don't want to dismiss that. But if I get too much into the complications, I, I forget about what a good time it is to have ethical integrity every day. It feels so good. But maybe you're like me. And when I hear the word ethics or ethical integrity, I think about all the bad things I do. Actually, I never think about ethics until I do something bad. <laughs> you notice this? Have you even noticed this on retreat? Things are going well. Paying attention to the feeling of the breathing. Notice how the mind wanders here and there. And then maybe I accidentally bump into somebody. Or I take the, the last last of the vegetables or the rice. I forget to open the door in a way that I feel guilty about. And then I just feel horrible about myself. And it's like a whole entire day over one small thing because I bumped into somebody and I'm thinking about how crappy of a person I am. (laughs) You ever do this? Or is this just me? (laughs) And so that's where my ethical integrity comes into place is, is where I mess up. And this is why it's so tough because there can be such a conditioning around that's what, what we consider. And we miss, we miss the sweetness of today and how much ethical integrity is in our lives. Can you feel that in this room? What a sweet thing to be in a group of almost a hundred people with quite a bit of ethical integrity. I find it tragic that we can pass a day and not savor that. To me, there's something painful about missing something that's so good in this world. So I invite you, I invite you, it could just be before you go to sleep or in the afternoon to reflect on, wow, there's a quality of integrity here and it feels so good. Such a gift to the world. There's all kinds of bad news out there. You don't need to add to it. This is really what's needed in our lives and in our world. If you're wanting something different if you're committed to freedom. And it shapes, it shapes this path and this practice when you can savor that, this bliss of blamelessness. Because it it allows the, the, the body and the mind to settle into this moment.
For example, the, there's one uh, discourse, the Chaitna Sutta, where the Buddha kind of begins and he talks about when there's this bliss, this enjoyment of ethical integrity, there's no need for an act of will to make the mind collect in a quality of concentration to happen. There's no need to put effort into kind of making this path unfold because with that basis, everything unfolds. And yes, I, I know that what I'm sharing with you sounds so simple. And again, I want to emphasize how it's not easy to take in what a wonderful space that we're in and what a beautiful thing we're giving to the world every day of our ethical integrity. There's a poet, Alison Luterman, that I think speaks to this. And I think her, the first line of this poem, I think, says it all. I'll share, you that, share with you the entire poem. She says, I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. I know the jealous fates in their dolorous heaven, how they love to feast on the heart. I know they've already marked the spot where one of us dies and the other stands open-mouthed and uncomprehending as dirt closes over our one song. But for just this moment, I want what I have. For just this moment, I want what I have. Oh, contentment. The contentment of myself and the ethical integrity that's happening right now. What a beautiful thing to savor. It's difficult to confess to such goodness. Somebody told me they saw a bumper sticker that said, Lord, please help me accept the truth about myself, no matter how good it is. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's difficult, the conditioning that's there, to see ourselves as somehow... Um, getting it all wrong. I know I come by it, honestly. I was reflecting on this. Maybe for those of you who grew up Catholic, remember, those of you who didn't, I'll, I'll share kind of the background. You know, there's this thing called uh, one's first Holy Communion, which happens when one is, I think, in like in second or third grade. And so here you are as a little kid and you, you go to, to um, receive... Um, the Holy Communion that happens in, in a Catholic Mass. But before you're able to receive the blood and body of Christ, you have to confess your sins. So here I am, like in second or third grade, and I'm being told I have to go to confession and think of something bad I've done 
And you know what's making me so nervous? I couldn't think of something bad I'd done, so I made something up. <laughs> so here's my training. Like, even, even if you don't feel it, we're going to make you, you know, make a world where you're not, not, not doing something so well. And that's the basis of coming into our spiritual community. I mean, I don't want to paint that big of a picture of the Catholic Church, but that was my experience. <laughs> there are some good things. Liberation theology, I think, is a, a beautiful thing that came out of that tradition. And you might have your own stories, too, of the conditions that have, have led of, of the fear of confessing to goodness, to happiness that's happening on your retreat every day here. So again, I, I just very specifically, again, um, what I'm inviting you to do, just a few times a day to reflect, oh, I, I'm keeping the five precepts pretty well today. I didn't intentionally harm another living being. I didn't intentionally steal anything. I mean, just enjoy if you just get one. One's good enough. <laughs> Maybe you have to get five. Okay, I kind of broke four of them. But I didn't drink any alcohol today. It was great. Ah, <laughs> oh, what a what a sweet thing. So so important. Because this is shaping. This is an ingredient that's shaping the heart and mind in a particular direction. I know it sounds small, but it's huge. I'll even contend, contend that if, if, if that was the only thing you did on this retreat was to savor your ethical integrity for a month, I, I swear to you it would be hugely transformative. Just that. If you were to say to yourself, screw it, I'm just going to spend all of my meditations thinking about what I'm going to do in the future with my life, but I'm going to have ethical integrity, it's still going to be a great retreat. I'm not suggesting doing <laughs> the former, but to remember this, this, this beautiful piece that we're engaged in together. So that was the first condition, ethical integrity and savoring it. The second condition, practicing not only for oneself, but for others as well. And you hear this, this valuing of this, this intention uh, even in early Buddhism. And it, of course it flowers in Mahayana Buddhism. In, in one sutta the Buddha says, just as from a cow comes milk, and from milk curds, and from curds butter, and from butter ghee, and from ghee the skimmings of ghee, and of these the skimmings of ghee are reckoned the foremost, the most refined. Ghee is the most refined aspect. And in the same way, the individual who practices for their own benefit and for that of others is the foremost, the chief, the most outstanding, the highest, and the supreme. So yes, to practice for yourself, but to also practice for others. And I find this very important given the times that we're living in and especially a kind of strand that can happen even within this spiritual tradition as it, as it gets modernized. And it's this flavor, um, actually the, uh, an author, Sandy Huntington, C.W. Huntington, the title of his, one of his articles puts it well. He's, he talks about the triumph of narcissism. 
We can get so self-involved and this can also pervade our spiritual practice. It's all about me. But this is something different. As I said, this flowers into this quality of bodhicitta. To see that what we're doing here, it's inevitably intertwined with the world that we live in. It's inevitably intertwined with the well-being of others. It's simply acknowledging that and allowing the heart to feel into that. I remember I had a a friend who was, uh, he still is uh, to a certain extent, a Tibetan practitioner and had never been exposed to Vipassana or the insight tradition and came on one of these retreats. And he was shocked that we would all sit down in meditation but not have this formal putting forth an altruistic intention before we'd start a sitting meditation period. That was crazy. He was right, it is a little crazy. Because for him, that was an essential piece. Practice, you just can't even practice without that sense. Because it acknowledges, really, also the, the, the um, illusory quality of the self. That something much bigger is going on when we engage in this practice. And this is why this is so valued in the Mahayana tradition, is just the power of that intention. As it said in, the, in this text, the Bodhicharyavatara by Shantideva, it's like a flash of lightning in the middle of the night. And just a moment of that, that, that practicing for the benefit of all beings dispels the darkness of the night in that moment of placing that intention. And it is something that I find that just placing this in my practice every day has made a, a huge impact about how I, I engage in this path and this practice. It's really made a huge pa- impact about how I live my life. And what I'm inviting you to do, just specifically, is really simple. For example, at the beginning of your sit, formal sitting meditation. You could do this at the beginning of the walking meditation too. It's just taking a moment or a few moments of placing the intention of may this go for the benefit of all beings. And then you forget it and then you just engage in your practice. But you set the, the meditation time up with that. And then at the end of the sitting meditation you might want to take a moment of, of uh, having a phrase of may this go, uh, may the merit of this sit right here go for, to the benefit of all beings, including me, but others as well. This is one of the ways I, I engage in this is I, I enfold it with when I'm bowing, before and after. It's shaping the mindfulness that we're engaged in, just as uh, Andrea was talking about. And also, don't worry if there is the feeling of it or not. It's just like when you practice loving kindness. Sometimes there's the feeling of loving kindness and sometimes there's not. What's important is placing the intention because that intention has a power to it. You know, so if you have one of those days where you're just not so much into humanity, don't worry about it. (laughs) Still placing the intention, not only for humanity but for all beings. And the other thing that I love about this is that when I get into this, it feels like I'm just, for each sit I'm doing, each walking meditation period, 
even the in-between times. I'm just giving a gift of my practice. It doesn't matter how much my mind has wandered. It's just my intention to. And then it doesn't matter what I'm getting out of my sitting meditation or walking meditation because I'm just giving a gift all the time and it feels so good. It's a much better way to get through a retreat day than kind of trying to figure out how well it's going for me. <laughs> Expands it. And there's a deeper level to this because I think what we can start to sense into just by placing this intention is really noticing how this practice reaches much, much farther than just our own lives in all kinds of ways. And I want to share with you one example of this. And this is an example of healing that I I feel dovetails and intertwines with this process of awakening quite well and what's happening when we're here on retreat, especially long retreat. I remember many years ago, I was, um, because I also uh, used to do this, um, working with people uh, dealing with accumulated stress or trauma, and, and someone had come with me, this woman who had been in many abusive relationships and this kind of cycle of these these abusive relationships. And there was this healing process that started to happen of coming out of this cycle in a really profound way. And she, um, what she began to realize is that she was healing a dynamic that, that really stretched back for generations and generations in various forms in her, her family. And so she started to have this feeling of stopping a dynamic that went way beyond her own life. And it was quite striking. She was started to have these dreams in the middle of the healing process. And for her, from her world worldview, it was her ancestors that were coming to her in her dreams. In particular, her um, uh, the women in her ancestral lineage. And these dreams of being thanked for putting an end to this dynamic that had gone on for generations and generations. And there she could feel how proud they were of her and that somehow they were being healed by her healing. And maybe some of you here can relate to this, that some of you have felt this same flavor in your own healing process, how it can extend back generations and generations to put an end to old habitual patterns that give rise to suffering. This practice reaches much farther than just our own lives. I think it gives a, an under, another understanding of how to understand rebirth. And I want to point out there's many ways of holding rebirth. I don't want to confine it to one view. But just a, another perspective on it. Someone asked uh, Chogyam Trungpa, what gets reborn? And he said, your bad habits.
And he gives a, a really a beautiful notion of what it is to end birth right here and now with awakening. To end bad habits from continuing on into the next generation. What a beautiful gift to the world when we practice for the benefit of all beings. A wonderful thing to put an end to the whole habitual patterns that come before us. That's what we're here to do. And whether you take rebirth in a more poetic way like this or literally, I think it gives real power to this next passage that I want to share with, share with you from, these, uh, from the Pali Discourses. Buddha asks his monastics around him this question. He says, what do you think, O bhikkhus, which is more? The stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This or the water in the four great oceans. And then the monastics say, Oh, as we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the stream of tears that we have shed as we roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. What a wonderful thing to put an end to, such weeping and wailing and suffering, whether it be intergenerationally or within your own lives. Not only in our families, but collectively in our societies that we find ourselves thrown into, to put an end to suffering. You know, it's, it's true that sometimes practitioners on, tr- on retreat, on, even on long retreat, can have feelings of being selfish while being on retreat. And what I want to point out, just given the trajectory of this, that it, it's actually impossible for what you're doing here to be entirely selfish. Because you don't live in a vacuum. So even if you were to think, damn it, I'm not into this bodhicitta stuff. I just want this to be selfish. <laughs> it doesn't work because we're, we're, we're intertwined so much in this web of being. So what you're doing here has an impact. It has an impact in your communities and in your families and in the world out there. And I find that that's important to remember when we're this, in this secluded environment to allow us to fully go inward for the benefit of all beings. I, I want to point out that for me, this has also been, this intention to practice for all beings has been really important for 
the dark days in my practice, the dark days on retreat. I remember there was a time when I was, um, you know, in, in those six years, when I was, uh, for many of those years, a, a monk in the Zen tradition. And I was I was just going through a bad time. I, I, I actually hit the darkest time of my life when I was a monk. And it was that feeling, and I don't know if you've ever had that feeling, where um, it's like you're going through the motions of living, but it doesn't feel like you're living anymore. It's like there's there's like a, a hollowness to, to life. And it's just, just the sense of just getting by day to day was so difficult. And so this this deadness was there inside and I was really just going through the motions of being there. And there wasn't much keeping me going and and the the one spark of light that started to happen was um oh, what I'm doing here, because there is also a big service part too, but also the practice, is just getting a sense of, well, at least I'm carrying on this tradition. So that maybe as I cook this meal or I clean up or I sit and light the candles in the meditation hall or I come to meditate, that the next generation too will be able to taste the Dharma, the Dhamma in some kind of way. And it was the first step out of that darkness because it was the link to something bigger than me that was really so transformative. This idea of keeping this practice going over generations, that it's not just about me or my family or, or this community, but something larger that continues. And it can be a difficult way of thinking about practice. And for others, depending upon how you're situated, may be quite easy. For example, in, in the area where I come from, in Flagstaff, there was, um, historically, there was some indigenous tribes that what they would do is when they were, and these were um, nomadic indigenous people, they'd be in one place and what they would do is they would um, bury in that place um, caches of uh, food like dried corn. And they'd pack it there and then they would move on their journey to the next place. But the striking thing was is that each place that they were leaving food was not food for them because their their journey was so large that by the time they got back there, their generation would have died. And it was always for the next generation. What would it be like to live our lives where we're leaving something for the next generation always? That what you're doing here is in a way to, to, to leave food that's there for the next generation by keeping this practice going. So again, just these two things, to take time every day to savor your ethical integrity that's right here in this room. To confess to happiness, to confess to pleasure in that way to start to train in that art of savoring, the bliss of blamelessness. And yeah, it's going to be tricky because you're going to bump into all the places where you feel like you've done horrible things. It's part of the practice. It's messy, like it is in the fields. And then the second one, to place that intention to, to engage in this practice, not only for oneself, but for others.
And I'd like to end uh, by sharing with you a, actually a red Tara dedication that I think expresses this quality of bodhicitta really quite beautifully. Here how, here's how this intention is put, at least in, in one version. Throughout my many lives and until this moment, whatever virtue I have accomplished, including the merit generated by this practice and all that I will ever attain, this, this I offer for the welfare of sentient beings. May sickness, war, famine, and suffering be decreased for every living being while their wisdom and compassion increase in this and every future life. May I clearly perceive all experience to be as insubstantial as the dream fabric of the night and instantly awaken to perceive the pure wisdom display and the arising of every phenomenon. May I quickly attain awakening in order to work ceaselessly for the liberation of all sentient beings. So may our practice today go to the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Let's sit for just a moment here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.